Good morning, church. If you'll turn in your copy of God's Word one more time to the letter of 1 Peter. One last time, we'll open up to this precious letter full of gospel truths. And we'll receive one main final exhortation from the Apostle this morning. Looking principally at verse 12, but we'll look at 12 through 13, or excuse me, 12 through 14. Finishing the letter this morning. I'm going to read all of chapter 5 for you as we open this morning. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the slanderer, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Father, we thank you for the truths in this letter and the work that you have done in each of our hearts these last almost now 12 months. We admit to you again, today, we are as dependent on your Holy Spirit helping us in this preaching hour as we've ever been. Apart from you, we can do nothing. 
So we pray that you would awaken and open eyes towards sin, towards a need for Christ, and strengthen us as you promised to do right here in this very text. Establish us, confirm us, restore us where we need restoration so that we might accomplish your work in this world, fulfilling your command and the promise that we stand firm in the faith till the very end. And do this so that you can bring your Son glory, Father, and usher in the kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Well, beloved, towards the end of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Ring trilogy, the hobbits who began the quest to destroy the One Ring and vanquish the Dark Lord Sauron forever are finally able to return home to their land in the Shire. But the Shire that they left has changed significantly. A terrible power has taken over... And it's up to our small heroes, seasoned by their adventures in Middle-earth, to take it back. Their wise traveling companion sums up the task for them. I am not coming to the Shire. You must settle its affairs yourselves. That is what you have been trained for. You are grown up now, grown indeed very high. Among the great you are. And I have no longer any fear at all for any of you. Now why do I lead off with a story like that on our last day in the letter of 1 Peter? Christ the King, I tell you what I believe Peter is saying, what I believe was said in the story at the end of the Lord of the Rings. After the hard work of destroying the Ring of Power was over, now it was time to go and take the land. Now it was time to finish the fight. Now it was time to stand firm in the faith. That's exactly what Peter is up to in verse 12. He says, essentially, Church of Christ, I've taught you, you've been trained, now... Go fight for your king. I'd wager a guess that precious few of us have been trained to think as Christians like this. The evangelifish Christianity that we were all likely raised in has discipled us in exactly the opposite. We've been taught to be modest to a fault, to not expect that God's Spirit can accomplish anything except maybe helping us make it to that morning devotional, or that perhaps our failings are too great for God to overcome, but it's okay because Jesus is coming back soon, and He died for you, so it'll be over shortly. The teachers and adherents of this kind of heresy 
will one day hear, you wicked and lazy servant. Beloved, according to Peter, what he said to his church, I've trained you. This is the grace of God. Now it's time to stand and fight. It's time to take what you've learned and put it into practice. He says briefly here, the beginning of verse 12, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, the ESV says, I have written briefly to you. At the conclusion of most of the New Testament epistles, there are personal salutations like what we see here in verses 12 and 13. And in verse 12, Peter mentions Silvanus, who played a role in the letter of 1 Peter, some kind of role he played. He's most often called Silas in the New Testament. You might not have known, but this was Paul's traveling companion, mentioned 11 times in Acts from chapters 15 to 18. And he's also likely the one mentioned by Paul at the beginning of 2 Corinthians and both the letters of the Thessalonians. Peter gives the churches a strong recommendation for Silvanus, but for what? Did he help to write the letter, or did he just carry the letter, or did he do both? Now, this may not seem like a very significant question, but challenges to our faith, particularly in an evangelical or an evangelistic context, are going to come in areas where we would just gloss over it and not notice. Well, what if Peter didn't write the letter? What if somebody else wrote it? What if it's pseudepigraphal? Or somebody else wrote it in his name and added their own thoughts or added completely new ideas to the Bible. Well, I don't have time to go into this at length this morning. But to answer the question, did Silvanus write 1 Peter? The answer to that is no, he did not. Your translation might say, by Silvanus or through Silvanus, I have written briefly to you. It might sound like he was a secretary, someone writing for Paul, but this is language that New Testament writers use often to denote the one who carried the letter. That's why he says, a faithful brother, as I count him. He's carried this letter to you. You can trust that its contents have not been altered in any way. He's brought it to you just as God gave it to me. And what did that letter contain? It contained an exhortation, a declaration that what was contained was the true grace of God. As we conclude the letter of 1 Peter this morning, I want to spend the bulk of our time looking at this second half of verse 12. Peter exhorts, he's calling alongside, we've seen that Greek word before, his dispersion churches, and he declares, he bears witness, or he testifies on legal grounds here. He's under threat of perjury. He says to them that this is the great declaration of the summation of all that I've said. This is the true grace of God. I swear it, essentially. To boil it down, this is the one imperative to rule them all. And this is a command, by the way. You might say it's Peter's version. 
of what Paul said to the Ephesian elders. Therefore, Paul says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Peter's saying, I didn't leave it out. Here it is. It's in your hands. Now it's time to stand and fight. Think about that phrase for just a minute, the true grace of God. What exactly does he mean by phrasing it that way? The true grace of God. Is he referring to something narrow in the letter? You can't isolate merely the gospel message, which he's sprinkled throughout the entire text of 1 Peter. The true grace of God is not merely a retelling of a set of historical events that likely happened some years before Peter wrote this from his imprisonment in Rome. We're not Gnostics. Christians believe that Christ's kingdom is not merely a series of soul conversions, stuff that happens on the inside, but He is interested, that is our God, is interested in the conversion of the entire world through the proclamation of the gospel and the transformation that it brings. The true grace of God, beloved, is everything that has been contained in this letter. Every last word of it. He's talking about all five chapters. All that he has said up to this point is the true grace of God. Let's think for just a minute about God's grace. You've likely heard that grace is at its most fundamental level unmerited favor. It is mercy that is completely undeserved. Everyone in Peter's churches, no matter how persecuted, no matter how oppressed, no matter what kind of victim they were, no matter how the hegemonic power structures of the upper class, aristocratic, white Roman males had kept them down. None of them were deserving of any of the kindness of God. Let me say that again. Nobody deserved God's kindness. Nobody did. We really don't understand the God that we worship, beloved. I'm here to tell you that today, no matter what you've been through in your life, that doesn't mean that God owes you anything. I'm not saying that He doesn't see what happens in your life. He does. I'm not saying that He doesn't care about what happens in your life. Peter just said He cares for you. But because of God's holiness, His otherness, His set-apartness from us, it is so beyond our comprehension that we can't even grasp how treasonous a crime our sin is before a holy God. He is unimaginably holy. And we, because we're trying to grasp it, oftentimes pull Him down to our level. We imagine Him to be like us. Isaiah said, you thought God 
was like you. We see our sin and we think of it as a light thing for God to turn away from. For decades now, the evangelical church in the West has been preaching a steaming pile of what they call truth, which is really just a masquerade of hot garbage. The romantic Jesus. The Jesus is my homeboy. God is my buddy. Ideologies. Dr. R.C. Sproul once said, A God who is all love, all mercy, and all grace, but no sovereignty, no justice, no holiness, and no wrath is an idol. Beloved, I bring all of this up because we live, all of us, all of our lives, have lived in a culture of cheap grace. And cheap grace is essentially socialist grace. It's like a Bernie Sanders breadline. Everybody's going to get a little. Don't get me wrong. The grace of God is free to us. You said it twice in the catechism this morning. The free grace of God. But beloved, know this. God's grace was not free. It was not free. Think about the Genesis account. In chapter 3, with the fall of Adam and Eve, they realized for those first moments after disobeying God that they were sinners and that their sin was exposed. God, in His typological way of telling stories, needed to cover their sin. What happened? The very first death in all of history. Of course, this symbolizes our sins needing to be covered and that only can be accomplished with a spotless lamb. You've probably heard the acronym that GRACE, G-R-A-C-E, stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. Don't let anybody say that grace is free. It is free to us, but it is not free. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, True grace is costly grace. He said, Grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns our sin. And it's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, grace is costly because it costs God the life of His Son. You were bought with a price. And what God, what has cost God much, 
cannot be cheap for us. Above all, Bonhoeffer concludes, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for us. But He delivered Him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. I think he's right. The Bible says that the Father dwells in unapproachable light. And yet at the beginning of this letter, what did Peter say? That we who were once in the domain of darkness because of Christ have been transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son into what? He calls His marvelous light. Unapproachable light, we are now in that kingdom of marvelous light. The incarnation, submission of Jesus to God, the substitution of a perfect spotless lamb, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is how we have received the true grace of God. This begs a question, beloved. Are the New Testament indicatives, those things that are true of us, fundamental to the gospel, unalterable, unchangeable, are those the true grace of God? Well, we would all say, of course they are. Nobody questions whether or not Peter is referring to the indicatives when he speaks of the true grace of God. Christians are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. They obtain an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, as unfading as Christ Himself. Protected by God Himself through the faith that He gives to each of us as we wait for the salvation that is coming on that last day when Christ returns. Now that right there, just the first three verses of the opening of Peter's letter is more grace than most of us can stomach in one day. Let me try and rapid fire this as quick as I can because there's even more grace that he layers on. Their faith, Christian's faith, is being refined through fiery trials that they can't get around. You get to put into your mouth and taste the grace which the prophets were charged to serve up and the angels wish that they could long to look into. They were redeemed like a hopeless slave child from the slavery of the foolishness of their fathers and set apart to be the holy children of God who crave the new spiritual milk of the Word as the true nourishment and food for their souls, which as Peter has written here, God amply supplies and from which we can feast sumptuously from all of its courses, Genesis to Revelation, since each of you likely is holding a copy of that Word in your hands. Through this Word of God, He is growing His church up into salvation to be His living stones, to be a new temple, the Jerusalem one, now torn down, never needing to be replaced, I used to always want that as a kid. Heard all these stories about rebuilding Jerusalem. No. That temple stays destroyed because we are the temple of the living God. By God's true grace, the church was set apart 
to be his chosen race, his royal priesthood, an entire nation holy and devoted to God. We are now God's own possession, still to this day proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into that incomprehensibly marvelous light. We, beloved, are a mercied people. But the question remains, the true grace of God, we understand how it can be the indicatives, what is indicative of us, what is true of us in Christ. But Peter says that all I've written to you, everything from beginning to end, that's all the true grace of God, including God's commands to us. Christians today cannot seem to grasp this concept. And I think this is the rotten fruit of the cheap grace movement. The commandments of God are His grace to us as well. When Peter says, this is the true grace of God, he wasn't thinking of the first third of his letter. He meant all of it. The true grace of God is not just what He saved you from, but what He saved you to become. God's grace functions in our lives only so far as you live in accordance with it. And it's still grace. It's not works. It's all the grace of God. You might call this living with the grain of grace. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, If we live by the Spirit, then let us keep in step with the Spirit. There are people here today who are missing out on the true grace of God. You're having trouble standing firm in it. Either because you're lost and you hate God and His commandments, or perhaps because you have believed a gospel of easy and cheap grace. Consider some of the graces Peter has shared as commands to his New Testament churches. It is part of grace that the church keep her conduct beautiful in front of outsiders. No, wait, I was thinking that was something I had to do. Yes, you're commanded to do it. You're commanded to keep with the grace of God. It is grace for us to live in a way that is excellent and praiseworthy before outsiders. It is part of the grace of God that Christians submit to righteous and to some extent wicked governments. It's also the grace of God that when those governments command us to disobey Him, we resist them. It is God's grace that He desires slaves to submit to their masters, showing those masters that God can transform even a slave by the power of the gospel and that ultimately everyone in Christ has a new master who is in heaven. And when those slaves are beaten for doing good and they bear up under it, keeping with God's grace, He gives them more grace. It is grace 
that wives submit to their husbands, both the righteous and the eh, less than righteous. By the way, for questions about whether it is acceptable to make a, appeals for injustices done in any of these situations, I refer you back to the archives, the sermons, and Christ the King app. We've gone through all of these and answered several questions and objections. You can go back and look that up in the app that Jeremy has made for us. It is grace that Christian women not dress like sluts. The gospel story is that God saved the slut and made her the bride of Christ. Yet Christian women still chafe at the standards laid out today in God's Word. I mentioned back in February that the Bible teaches a neck-to-knee standard of covering for both men and women. You can go back and listen to that. It was on February the 20th if you didn't listen to that sermon. Yes, it is grace for a wife to have such respect for her own husband that it would not seem foreign at all for her to occasionally call him, my Lord, out of a spirit of deference. That's keeping with grace. It's freeing. It sets us free to live in the lane that God's given us. Becca mentioned a tweet from Eric Kahn this last week. Made me laugh. He said, women, you are more. You are more than a sandwich maker. For example, you're also a taco maker and a tater tot baker and a baby maker. Now, of course, you know Eric puts stuff like that out online and people just, you know, light their hair on fire and <laughs> run around in circles and... What I love is truly Christian women who have learned to appreciate and love grace look at that and they're like, yes and amen. Look what I get to do. I'm living with the grain of grace. It is grace for husbands to live with their wives according to knowledge. It is grace for Christians to not return one another evil for evil. It's also grace for us to suffer well and do good to those who harm us in order to maintain a good conscience and ultimately lead them to Christ. For us to use our gifts of grace to serve one another, to rejoice in our trials, for elders to shepherd the flock of God from a place of joy and eagerness, setting an example for the church, for the young men to deny their autonomy, which feels surreal, and yet live with the grain of grace as they submit to their elders. It is grace for the whole church to live in humility with one another and fight Satan together. This is grace. This, Peter says, is the true grace of God. Rather than being a list of do's and don'ts, this is how God wants us to keep receiving grace. Peter says, all of this, what is true of you positionally before the Father in heaven and what He desires for His children on earth is all a gift. It's all unmerited favor. 
came at a high price. The highest price imaginable. The sacrifice of the Son of God. And yet, it's all yours. So stand firm in it. It's time to go to war. It's time to fight. How do you fight? You stand firm in all of this grace of God. Ace hos istemai. In it stand. Get up. Keep your place. Establish. Keep intact. Be steadfast. Do not waver. You can hear Peter's plea to his churches. You just finished the letter I wrote you. Your elders preached through it with you. Probably faster than in a year. Church, don't walk away from it and go back to the way that you used to be. Stay in the grace. Stand firm. Now, we have been in 1 Peter for almost a year. Those of you who came with us from Basswood have been in it longer. What part of the true grace of God have you given up standing firm in? Have you bought the lie of the cheap grace movement? Do you take for granted the extravagant cost for which God Himself had to step down from an eternal paradise into a world full of sin and sickness and death and hate and envy and wars and offer Himself blameless of sin for His entire earthly life? on behalf of those who would torture and murder him. Have you forgotten how costly that grace is? And that all that is given to us in the gospel through repentance and faith in that work of Christ, how is God ever going to let one scintilla of that fall off? How is it ever going to fade away? Think, beloved, of the mighty, perfect work of Christ. None of it can ever be taken from us. None of that glory is ever lost. Always and forever, positionally, this is our inheritance. If you struggled to hold on to this part of the grace of God, Go back to the indicatives. This week, I would encourage you to read 1 Peter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. Read it devotionally each day. Ask God for a deeper understanding of the greatness of His grace to you in Jesus Christ. What about those of you who are continuing in unrepentant sin? In one of the imperatives of Peter's true grace of God... You're struggling right now in a marriage, at home, at work. In your mind, you've made up your mind. I know what's best for me. If I keep doing this and they get on with their thing and get their act together, then we'll all be fine. And you're running right up against this beautiful pasture of grace and the joy that God has given us in it. You refuse to enter in. 
No, my way is better. Is there a husband here today who's given up on the loving treatment of his wife, having to this point seen little success in his efforts to mortify his sin? I've tried, and I really think that it's just her fault. So once she gets her act together, everything will be fine in our home. Is there a wife who still refuses to be entirely submissive to her husband's rule in the home? She speaks like her marriage has two leaders. And she's already pushing the boundaries of God's standards for modesty. Is there a young child here who's heard about Christ and His kingdom, but is still to this day refusing to bow the knee to Him? Is there a family here dealing with conflict in the church but pridefully retreating from the problem rather than loving the church and humbly engaging, even though it might come at a cost. To these and many more I say, do you understand that these commands of God are His grace? Obedience here is in keeping with the true grace of God. Church, Wherever it is needed, repent and come back to the grace that God gave you at the first and keep in step with the Spirit and honor God with your body and actions and stay, as Peter has told us here, standing firm in the true grace of God. Well, he goes on in verse 13 to speak of she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen that she sends you greetings. So Peter is sending some co-greetings here. And this forms what's called in biblical language an inclusio, which is a way of bracketing or enveloping the letter. You'll remember back in chapter 1 that he wrote of the elect exiles. Remember that word also means chosen. It's the same Greek word. So you've got elect exiles or chosen exiles in chapter 1. And here at the end he says, and she who is likewise chosen, he's concluding his letter. He uses the feminine pronoun she to name his co-greeter. And it's a reference to the church of which Peter is a member. Babylon is an interesting location to mention for the church. And he's not talking about the ancient city in Mesopotamia. Old Testament Babylon was a pile of ruins at this point. And there are no accounts of Peter going there in or outside of the Bible. This is more than likely a reference to Rome. He was likely imprisoned here at this point, writing 1st and 2nd Peter shortly before his martyrdom. Now, contrary to what the Roman Catholics say, and this is one of their main go-to passages to support papal arguments with Peter, there is nothing here, even if Peter is in Rome, about him being a pope or a bishop or the vicar of Christ on earth. He's not even explicitly said, I'm the teaching elder at this church. He's writing as an apostle to churches to encourage them in their faith. It is a fact, though, that he was likely here the last months or years of his life. Peter also makes mention of Mark, his son, 
This is a reference to John Mark, Paul's brief traveling companion, and also the scribe for Peter, Peter's gospel, of course, the gospel of Mark. Well, moving on to verse 14. And to conclude, greet one another with a kiss of love. Well, let's end our study on an easy verse. <laughs> I'm tempted to read to you from the J.B. Phillips translation, which says, Give each other a handshake all around. <laughs> Here's what we know, beloved. Whatever Peter is saying here, it is a command. This is actually the last imperative in the letter of First Peter, the verb greet there. He is commanding something specific, not something general. It is a kiss of love, which is likely, likely Peter's rendering of Paul's holy kiss. A kiss is common in earthly households, but interestingly enough, it was not a part of the synagogues. This is a command as part of the gathering of the church, which makes sense because a lot of these early Christians, the church was their only family. Either at the beginning of the end of the service, the saints would have greeted one another with some kind of kiss. It's likely that this was on the cheek. Over time, this greeting was taken on solely by the bishops and deacons of a church. It was then reduced to the elders, deacons, bishops clasping the shoulders and giving a short bow. And now it is at best the holy hug. Two brief things I want to say about the kiss of love. First, be warned of cultural appropriations. There is nothing in the New Testament that teaches that this was only a cultural expression of love. When you start down the, well, that was then, this is now line of thinking, the Bible sort of becomes a Jenga tower, you know, waiting for it to collapse. Women preaching? Well, if Paul were alive today, sure he would have said, yes, that's our culture. We have to be guarded against thinking that way. We do. It's very common. The second thing I want to say, though, is we also have to be careful about applying a text very rigidly and woodenly without thought for other implications in a cultural context. Let's say, for example, that we were to gender this command. Let's say that men were to offer a kiss of love on the cheek or even to the side of the cheek towards another man. And it didn't cross genders, men to women, back and forth, things like that. We still have to remember that here in the West, and especially in America, we have a highly sexualized society, and this could give the appearance of some kind of evil. Consider a place in the world where a veil or head covering is also a cultural symbol of prostitution. Now, how do you apply the text in that context? I would tell you, you want to disciple those people first, which may take generations. And at a certain point, 
when the gospel has spread and had an impact in that community, you can encourage and teach on the topic of head coverings. Whatever you choose to do with a head covering, whether it's a veil over the face, over the back of the face, whether it's a woman's hair, whatever it is, you want to be careful of a wooden, rigid application of the text without thought, pastorally speaking, for how that would affect people in that context. And this is a big issue for us. We could probably say that at Christ the King, for the most part, we're generation zero in building a new Christendom here in Anderson County and the Clinton area. If your parents raised you in the faith, it's likely that if you came into the faith, you never got off the beginnings of the faith. You never got off the bottle. You never went from milk to meat. That's my story. We're going to have to begin as a church thinking generationally about change in Anderson County. Our family had an opportunity to go to the fair this last week. We had a great time. The kids were glad to see the displays and games, and they even won some prizes while they were there. But the fair is, as many of you know, not so fair anymore. Um, sad to say that most of the women were in what could be called underwear, moms included, and that's not meant to be hyperbole. I was grieved in my heart about it, but on the way home, I wanted to point my kids in a different direction. I wanted to create something imaginative in their minds. What do you guys think the fair is going to be like when you're taking your kids to the fair? What's that going to be like? And what's it going to be like when your kids take your grandkids to the fair? What's that going to be like? Can we expect over time to see generational change in this community? Yes, we can. Jesus has promised us that's going to happen. It's guaranteed. For most of us, victory in our families in our lifetimes could look like a number of different things. But at the very least, children growing up in a home with a father and a mother where the father actively disciples his household and the mother exemplifies submission to her husband's leadership. The very core. If we get that, we go from generation zero to generation one. The new Christendom in Anderson County. Don't hear me setting the bar too low. God can do some amazing things in our lifetime, and we expect him to. He's already done some amazing things in our first year here. But we have to remember that the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom that he's building, is generational. Christianity has gotten to where it is because of 2,000 years of gospel proclamation and discipleship of the nations. We are a small part of that story. And because of the sin of the church, we can't even give a kiss of love anymore without being thought of as lewd or inappropriate. One day, maybe for our great-grandchildren, this command will be enjoyed as it was in the first century. Well, I said at the beginning of this sermon that it's time to stand and fight. And that's intimidating, but I want you to hear Peter's final words. He says, peace be to all of you who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, then what? Let his peace be on you. 
What is that? It is the transfiguring calm that comes with that assurance of the sufficiency of the work of Jesus on your behalf. Whatever we face in the coming years here in Anderson County Church, remember the peace of Jesus Christ and let it rest on each of us. I ask that now for each of you. May the peace of Christ rest on each of you. The most concerning thing over the last year for Christ the King was not unyielding sickness. It was not difficulty in your marriage or in your job. It was not the obstinate child or children. It was not a lack of assurance or a county commission that doesn't care for our church. It was not the question of where are women going to go now to murder their children. These were not the most significant things that we had to face. The most significant thing that any man on earth will ever face is the wrath of God. And because of Jesus Christ, there is no more wrath. Only peace. Let that rest on you. Let it rule in your hearts. So, are you ready for year two? of God's mission to take back Clinton, Tennessee for Jesus. Let's stand and fight and pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning. We thank you for this letter. We pray that the words that were spoken this morning helped your saints to stay in the grace of God. All of it. What is factually true and that grace that we are commanded to continue in, remembering that it was all paid for at the highest price, the price of your son. Oh, help us now as we prepare to fellowship that our thoughts and attention would be turned continually again and again towards Jesus and his love for us. It is in his name we pray. Amen.